Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 380, and I had a conversation with Jessica Hairston. Jessica is a former foster kid and adult adoptee who reunited with her birth family at the age of 19. She's a survivor, an exceptional writer. Her poetry collection, Power of Our Wombs, is a moving look at childhood, racial trauma, sexual trauma, mental health, creativity, and belonging. Uh, even if you're not really into poetry, which I am very much into poetry, and I loved her collection. I dog-eared the book and put sticky notes all over it. It's so, so well done. Uh, but even if you're not into poetry, her story is really an incredible one. And I think that you will find something in there that you enjoy. I just FYI, though, there is a trigger warning on this episode for sexual assault and abuse. Check out heyhumanpodcast.com for links and to learn more about my guests and the show. Check out susanruth.com to learn about me and my other artistic endeavors. Follow Susan Ruthism and Hey Human Podcasts on social media. Find my albums on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your music. There's lots of records out there. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It's super helpful, and I really appreciate those rates and reviews. All right. Thank you for listening. Be well, be kind, be love, and here we go. Jessica Harrison, welcome to Hey Human. Thank you for having me. Shout out to Tony, who I adore and always sends amazing humans to to talk with me. So thank you to Tony, too. (laughs) Were you a student of his? I was. Yeah. yeah. I graduated O'Dowd in 2016, Bishop O'Dowd. Um, Had him freshman and I believe junior year, took African-American studies. I wish I'd had a teacher like him when I went to school. Yeah. You wrote this book that you sent to me, thank you, Power of Our Wombs, and it is so, 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 like a thousand so's good. It's so good. Thank you. It's, uh, <laughs> uh, there's so many feelings I've been feeling while reading it. I talked Ooh. to my dad this morning, and I, he said, oh, who are you interviewing today? And I, and I said, you, and I said the title of the, the book. And he said, oh, she must be a feminist. And I said, what does that mean to you, dad? And it, it actually triggered this hour-long conversation hmm. about his understanding from his yeah. generation of what it means. And my generation, which is, I'm probably, I think, older than you, so and your generation of what that word means. But I thought it was so interesting that he hears the word womb and he just puts it on mother hmm. or a woman. Hmm. Instead yeah. of the idea that he too grew in a womb, that it's also a part of him and his experience. Yeah. It's anyway fascinating. Yeah, no, exactly. Agreed. And, and you know, I think also, you know, we're in this age where we have these conversations about us as human beings possessing both feminine and, you know, masculine energy. And I think um, the same goes, you know, I'm reading a book or I'm listening to an audio book about trauma and, um, uh, specifically looking at like avoiding attachment styles and it was just kind of talking about um, I like the language that they use about systems you have your sexual system you have your caretaker parental you know system and et cetera et cetera um but I I think that 
human beings, we both have like a maternal aspect and a paternal aspect within us. So no, agreed that it, there is this instinct to sort of place it on the female experience only, um, which is not the case. Tell me about your childhood and how that shaped you. So I'm 25. I was born in Oakland. I was born to drug addicted parents. Um, I was born addicted to crack. I think it's really interesting because as a child, um, or maybe more, I, I can't exactly remember the first time my mother, I think it might've been actually high school that she allowed me to sort of look through like our, my adoption documentation and things of that nature. But it, you know, it does, it's interesting to actually sit and look at, um, you know, sort of written in like medical jargon of like, okay, baby, it's gonna have to go through withdrawal. First test run, you know, my, my birth father, um, rest in peace to him, he passed away from AIDS the last 10 years of his life, he kind of was afflicted with a lot of complication related things due to, you know, you know, compromised um, situation. So just immediately coming into the world, there's these, you know, I'm another one of those children that has all these, you know, tubes connected to them, taking medications, being checked for HIV. You know, what else I learned in the documentation was um, that I actually had, a, or at the time when I was around like 14, um, this is when I did for sure realize that I had at least one sibling um, because the paperwork was kind of talking about like, you know, the courts found another child by the birth mom, um, 12 years older, had been living with her for like two or three years in the beginning and then was placed into foster care as a result of the drug abuse. And so in that first poem, Ours, Minds, in the book, I talk about um, having, so once I re reunited with my birth, my birth siblings, my parents have both passed, but when I reunited with my birth siblings, um, 20... 2019 uh, or 2018 and I was like 19 or so something like that I reunited and that's when in talking to my mother's first daughter that's when I learned and she's actually the first sibling I met um surprisingly because I was like I don't know how I'm gonna meet this this child like it's just referred to as minor and her identity was protected um it's a 12 year gap so I'm like she'd kind of be anywhere at this point so in, in speaking with her she's like you know you know my mother you know she was already fairly addicted. She probably had started her addiction in her teen years. And then by the time my sister was born around, she was about 20 or 21, she had her, she, you know, sold her, you know, she needed drugs and straight gave her to the, the drug dealer um, as payment. And she, we don't exactly know how long my sister was with him, but over at least a week, maybe longer. And no one, no one came looking for her until family members came over and like, so where's, where's, where's your daughter? What's going on? Even, even within that, you know, my sister was like cooking for herself at two years old, trying to move around the kitchen and boil water by herself. Um, and so she even has this massive burn on her hand. She said it wasn't until she was about 18 or 19 going to get her first job, having to go up to like Sacramento, I think, um, and get her official birth record outside of her like foster care paperwork and all these things. And that's where she, the foster worker was like, I can't really tell you this, but I'm going to just tell you now, or I'm going to just kind of slip it in. Like, I do, I think we do know what happened to your hand and kind of do know why you ended up in foster care. So that was her first time learning about her own story as well. But it was just this really profound experience of like, hey, can I ask you about this? Like, I, I have this, it's interesting how it's kind of written in a sort of uh, very formal um technical language like 
is there a way that I kind of wanted the story to be humanized and I wanted to hear it from my sister's point of view instead of just what's real basically written up in this paperwork. It was just so interesting to hear that, get that filled in from my sister. And then she was like, can you please send me the paperwork? I know it's yours, but um, you know, it's something, it's a form of healing for her as well. Uh, I think I went to like a sort of private preschool kindergarten. Um, that was, I don't know if you know much about Oakland. Um, so this would have been maybe 2000 and two, 2001, maybe to 2003 or four. I don't know, I was just giving context of the urban area. We, we, this school was located um, on the water, kind of by, um, before Jack London, like once you get off 880 under the freeway, um, kind of on the water. Um, it's interesting, I'm reading a book right now called, um, you might have heard about it or not, The Writers Come Out at Night. It's about like police corruption, cover-ups in Oakland. There's this restaurant that I used to eat at during that time um, called Buttercup. And we, it was very, it was right, like right across the street from my school, but it pops up in this book as a place where um, OPD goes to often and, um, you know, they'll go do something really, you know, horrific and then go meet as a group and like eat lunch at the Buttercup during the early 2000, 2000, 2004. So it was very interesting to sort of see that pop up. Buttercup, such a random place. It's mostly just warehouses over there, or at least it was at the time. So it was, it honestly just made sense because of, um, you know, um, OPD loves like many of these type of police departments. They love finding uh, abandoned areas and taking people over there and abusing people and things like that. So it's just interesting that way, um, how urban, ur urban development plays a part in kind of empowering militarization and uh, police conduct, misconduct. And then I went to a public public elementary school up on 98th past the zoo called Grass Valley Elementary School. Grass Valley um, has been in the news kind of lately uh, as of maybe like 2018. The mayor, I think it was Libby at the time, Libby Schaff, uh, kind of in city council of Oakland had all of these directives with the school board to um, close like uh, up to about 11 schools or more um, throughout Oakland. And it's kind of been litigating and going forward since 2018. Um, but I remember in 2018, a lot of students kind of left this, left school, doing a lot of walkouts, doing a lot of protests. And a, a lot of other schools in Oakland were just like slated to close, which are mostly schools in West Oakland and maybe downtown or West Oakland, but, you know, strategically missing areas that are serving white, white students. Literally like this spring or the end of 2022, they announced that they weren't going to close the schools. Like all of the protesting, all of the, they occupied Parker Elementary um, to try to prevent the closure of all of these schools. And so it's been like six or six or so years of um, hard work to prevent that. And so it's really interesting to actually see that come through. Currently, I'm, I'm a student, creative writing major, or well, I may be dropping out at the moment, but I was studying at Mills College in Oakland, uh, which is now known as Northeastern University, starting July 2022. And the, the campus actually has a middle school and a elementary school. So my middle school is on the campus. And it's called Julia Morgan School for Girls. So, you know, in my class, we probably had about three or, three or four Black students total. Um, and in the beginning, you know, things are great. They like the having a diverse background of students, so to speak. I mean, it's not that diverse, but it was diverse for a school like that. 
and then I kind of was just like, you know, but if your daughter has any troubles, any social troubles, any academic troubles, any troubles outside of school that trickle in, um, unfortunately, you know, you know, you know, because I remember when I was going there, one thing they used to always say was, when you come to school, you know, you have to leave your problems at the door. Like your problems are not allowed to come in the classroom. This is, you know, we, we want a distraction-free environment. Um, like they would say this to us. So I was like, well, I don't think that's how that works, but we'll, we'll see. <laughs> you know, it ended, it ended, it ended pretty painfully for me. Um, and I was like, honestly, I, I wouldn't do it again. I wouldn't send my children there. Um, just because of how horribly this, the administration handled issues. Um, and, you know, the equity in supporting students was just not there. It was a ton of support for the, the, the white kids that come from the Oakland Hills and the Berkeley Hills and like nothing really for anyone else. Were you going in and out of foster care this whole time? Did you get adopted early on? I was in foster care for about 10 months and I still first started first started my placement at 10 months with my mom and would go home with her frequently for about three months and then have full-time placement and it takes about another two years for the adoption to be finalized. I think my biggest experience take or my biggest takeaway from that is you know you know as we we're just talking about like avoiding attachment there is definitely um, i just learned about this term called relinquishment trauma which is something that adopted children feel you sort of have to um you know in, in matriculating into your family there's this relinquishment per period that you go through where your adopted family kind of asks you to focus just on them and kind of let go of the past that you've just come from um and so i can definitely say that it's something that i um, experience in our relationship my mom and um, is something that definitely eroded because there was especially particularly with my mom who also I would say has an avoidant attachment style there's just this need to sort of avoid anything that is unsettling and uncomfortable and so um, you know that's part of wrapped up in my um, identity issues with my names and stuff like that because even though Jessica is the person that I have been the longest in my life, Kamani is someone very early on that I had the, the original trauma of my, the way that I came into the world. And then the second trauma of having a family that asked me to sort of leave that part of myself behind and not let that be someone that I can continue to identify as. That's um, your birth, your birth name. Yeah. My birth name, uh, Kamani, you know, when I was, so then when I was seven, um, the wound was additionally reopened um, in us adopting a child or trying to adopt a child again. Um, she was about two and I was about seven. Quick side note, you know, it's really interesting because I actually remember my mom kind of sitting me down and was like, what do you think about having a sibling? And it kind of, the conversation was followed up with her. Like she put out a whole folder and like, you know, it really was sort of like, you have these pictures of children printed out, um, or at least she did, I don't, I don't know. It's like and, a Sears catalog of children. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, because I think this something similar happens like with surrogacy and with um, open uh, open adoptions where you kind of can be presented with the, the family that you want to adopt a child from, um, where you can kind of like look through and meet the family. Um, I know that's um, a story that happens as well. Well, I think adoption um, is big business. I don't know that people understand that there's a lot of money to be made in the baby getting market. And yeah. so when I see things like abortion rights being taken away, which will more impact lesser advantaged economic peoples, 
then all these babies that will be born as a result will yeah, it makes sense that the people who make money off of babies want to make sure the people that don't have money so that when they have babies, they give them up, that that process keeps going. Agreed. Again, about the economics, you know, um, they, they tried a similar thing in the 80s and 90s where, um, you know, there was this real push in hospitals to, and I, and I kind of state this in the book, but it, it was really, it really was this of really targeting black mothers in labor and, and forcibly testing them to make sure that they could find something on you that you are addicted or anything that stands out. So white mothers use much drugs, but they were never tested and their children were not taken from them. So there really it was um, a push to keep a system going and keep making money off of newborn children. And there's a world that foster children essentially as a you know, if they age in the system that they play in the workforce and um, the, you know, incarceration force um, and all of that. So we have this short force of kids, people who um, will, will always be in that world, keeping, keeping cots open. Um, you, you adopted know, into a white family or a black family? My mom is black. Um, it's a black family. And I just actually started learning about the Harrisons, which is their father's side of the family. Um, so it was a book written on them, the Hurston, which is the Scottish, you know, made their money off of off of slavery. So I would say that they're, you know, I'm still learning, but like, you know, having a parent that's fairly avoidant attachment attached, it's hard to learn about their their life um, and the, the where they come from. Um, which is also something that kind of made it difficult for me to fully um, you know, settle in the family. Um, as a kid and I, I understand who I'm quote unquote related to or living with or being uh, reared by the Harrisons, like my father or my mother's father's family were pretty um, bougie, bougie, I would say um, in, in the historical context, um, they, you know, were definitely some of the first to be able to go to um, historically black college. And so there was sort of a little bit of an elitist mindset that sort of divided the family um, after, once they got a little bit older, um, the father had become estranged from the family, moved to a whole different state. And so, you know, even within the book, right? Like there's, I talk about mother wounds and I talk about, um, you know, the history of mother and mother figures that I've had, like even as far as um, dance teachers and stuff like that. But I don't talk much about my adoptive mom, mostly because, um, particularly because, and I feel kind of like I did a little bit of a disservice. Like I talked all this stuff about what the book was about and blah, 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 but it's missing a large element of the person who actually raised me. Um, and it's just because we are strategically at odds about being open and vocal about um, my life as it pertains to her and um, her life and just any kind of lineage that just connects her at all. Um, so the last book, the last poem of the book is a, sort of dedicated to my mom. It's more of a love poem. I, you know, I actually gave it as a Mother's Day gift. Communicating is a struggle between us. And so sometimes that's one way that I use writing where I'm like, you know, it's hard for me. It's hard to talk about hard things and it's hard to express intimacy as well and feelings of love. So I wrote it to her. I wrote love to her in it through a poem. This is um, the thing about mothers at the very end, at the, towards the end. But I um, hope in the second version of my book, I'm probably going to make it longer. It'll have essays and prose writing, things of that nature. 
um, maybe even a little bit more research. It'll be probably twice the length. Um, maybe come out sometime next year. Um, Have you reunited with your other siblings besides the eldest? Yes, um, my father has. My, my father's first two kids um, are in the early thirties. My sister is in her late thirties. Um, my mother side. So my father's two kids. Um, they all basically like my sister lives in Panola, which is Marin County. It's about 35, 40 minutes from um, the heart of the bay. My father's kids live. My sister lives in. Uh, just moved to Las Vegas. She was living up in Roseville, past Sacramento. Um, my brother was living in Stockton. And I have two younger siblings. Uh, so I have a younger sister who's will be 21 in October. When you have a trauma from the get-go, we could all we could argue that being born is traumatic enough, but then you've got this other stuff compiled on top of that. And then you get into the foster and then you get adopted. Every at every turn, you're told an identity. Right now, you're a crack-addicted baby. That's your first yeah. identity. Now you're a foster kid. Now you're a, a survivor of abuse. Now you're an adopted person. Now here's your records, and they yeah. tell you this whole other story. And now you're yeah. going to a school that says you're not allowed to have feelings about anything. I mean, And then you meet siblings who are then giving you this whole other identity, how like i personally for me named susan i don't think my parents got my name right i don't know what my name is but i know it's not that i don't know what it is i know it's not that but how do all those hugely defining moments in your life how do you find who you are when you're a soul if you believe in a soul in a a, whatever this is (laughs) and, and that operates in its own existence too yeah it's a big um, question it's a big question but i am yeah you know um childhood was definitely hard it was hard for me um to figure out who i am um and um work with all of these stories and these narratives in my life like you said just because of, or especially with um not having space and real freedom or support to do that you know it's hard to grow up when you're like three or four right you, you still barely have a conscious memory um but you have an overload of feelings and emotions already sitting in your body um particularly around like inconsistency and attachment and trust and you then you become this adopted child and you know i seen a poem there's this 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 urge or this and i mean i'm so young it's hard to say that i was like someone sat me down and was like you have to be this and that as an adopted child this is a woman who is er, you know yearning from it for for a daughter to do the maternal experience um there's something here that needs to be fulfilled because you know i think also within the, the placement system there's this divide between how we understand foster kids and adopted kids and so foster kids is like just give them a home just give them supervision you know we won't worry about the rest just get them you know um, with adopted children, it's like, okay, life is great now. You've been adopted. Like, yay, you're, you're normal again. It's like, that is not, neither of those narratives are true or fully, you know, uh, correct. And really leave kids and, and the, the families, foster families, adopted families, without a, a real understanding of reality and uh, the support needed for those realities. And so to be three or four and you have these things, you know, swirling around in your in your body, memories, feelings, all of these things, um, you, there's this desire on my part to be able to better communicate with my mom because I could see that bonding was 
a struggle. And I think it's interesting because some of my later paperwork um, say things like, um, the child is progressing well, she's smiling, she appears to be happy. But um, that is not really the narrative that's, that's fully true. And even if you can catch my mom in a moment where she's, you might, she might slip up and say something that is not um, what she really wants to come out, you know, doesn't, you know. So, you know, she'll say things like, um, you know, you never, you, you just, you cried a lot. You cried a lot. You know, you didn't have your first smile until you were like almost two and a half. Because um, smiling is one of those things that I've learned that as far as child development is something that you get from imitation and when you don't have consistent um, adult in your life, it takes a long time to gain, gain those things. And so even when I was a kid, my mom would, would say things like, um, you were fine, you were fine, like you were not abused, you were not abused, but then we'll say things like, but you know, when I got you, like you were clearly underdeveloped, like you couldn't speak, you weren't babbling, you weren't crawling, you couldn't lift your own neck you know, or um, lighter, you had the bald patch in the back, which is not unusual for babies, right? Mm-hmm. But some people do say that it could be an indication of someone, a child that's just been laying in a, a, a crib um, without much uptime. And so I think it's interesting because then as I got a little older and I was with my mom and I started to be socialized in the daycares, and then I was like, would not sleep. And I've essentially been ins- had insomnia most of my, like, it just I've never really been a good sleeper well with and all so, that, that childhood trauma I would imagine it would develop a sense of sleeping with one eye open so you yes. never really get fully rested right and so I had this this nickname as a child of being observant and being an observer and so like I'd be at daycare and they'd, they'd, they'd be like lay down lay down go to sleep just just five minutes go to sleep and I'd be like no <laughs> I am up I am watching I am not going to sleep and so I think it's interesting that my mom is unable to see the, the connection there. But in your first year, I think it's scary to even get the idea that, you know, because my mom was definitely like, there was probably at least 10 kids in the group home that you were in. Like, it was very busy. It's not so much judgment. I mean, I'm not trying to take care of 10 kids. It's a lot. Especially if you don't know them very well and in and out, in and out, whatever. But it goes in line with the feelings I have of, not just not yeah not there's a lack of trust and it's so deeply innate I, i'm having a hard time even fighting it um and it's something that i've had to go and do research on for adopted kids of like you know i've talked to adoptees who are like i was basically placed with a family at three days and was never really able to emotionally recover I was addicted very young um in the house never really bonded well with the adopted parents and they take that very personally i mean it's hard after you think okay well it's just a phase it'll by middle school by high school maybe by the beginning of college they'll start finding themselves and they'll, they'll come back and it, it doesn't usually um work that way usually a lot of times if nothing else it tends to heal itself possibly when that adopted child starts to have kids themselves um that's what i see most like in blogs and people talking about their own personal experience um, but I didn't know that there were so many adopted adoptees who were like in their thirties and they're like, I don't know when I'm going to be able to, you know, connect with my adopted parents. And these are the people I've been with for 30 years or whatever. It's um, validating, but it's scary because it's not a place that you want to be when you're like, people are telling you, well, you, this is like, you've got a beautiful family. Look, lucky you, like, you know, chip on your shoulder, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I've, I've been working really hard to solve intimacy and attachment issues in my relationship with my mom because she was so insistent on you were not abused let's not talk about this you've got a new family let's move forward your name is jessica everything's fine we're great we're good 
And now you put me in therapy at six years old and now I'm 25 and we still don't have a relationship. And if we just allowed me to be me in the beginning, really, maybe, maybe we wouldn't be here as much <laughs> to the degree we are as um, almost estranged. Um, it's really heartbreaking. It really is. Um, uh, <laughs> That's a lot of expectation on a child, first of all. And secondly, it's, it's not about the adoptive parents. It should no. be about, in my humble opinion, it yeah. should be about the children. So them, any adoptive parent providing a stable, that's the baseline. Yes, a healthy, nurturing, loving, baseline. that's the fucking baseline. So it's, it's not a superhero thing. You're not saving no. the world. That's the, the least you can do honestly it's providing warmth and love and shelter and food and really in my humble opinion again i don't know because i'm not adopted but it's to expect a child to somehow magically be like oh here we are this everything's great now even at a young age i've read a lot about adoptive and ivf kids who grow up with this <laughs> sense deep sense of I'm, I, I, there's something missing. It's, it's either, or there's an abandonment that is so deep. Yeah. And you talk a lot about generational trauma as well in, in your book and the idea of how far back have we been abandoned? How far back how does it go? There's this, I'm right here, this really from the beginning of the book, it, it grabbed me and this line you say, and I still keep my hands up to shield my face to prevent any new loving that won't stay that I don't have the power to keep. So powerful. I mean, it just gives me shivers. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, you know, um, it's interesting you picked that out. Um, that that's, I don't mean that lightly. Um, yeah, that is another one of the trauma responses that I had as a kid was to be highly defensive. Um, and I'd have these defensive postures that um, became um habits or normal so like when i say like i would rub my like it was when you spend this much time in the crib like this and then eventually you just start and then i would just kind of keep my face and it, it's kind of like a stem in a way where it's like a thing that i do to comfort myself and so i have this it's weird i'm <laughs> being honest but um i have this, no, but I this. really quick yeah. i just want to say for those that because this is a listening show uh she put her hands up over her her face so that's just like yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, um, so I have this sort of, one of my, one way that I kind of regulate myself is by rubbing fabric. Um, so it's blankets, pillows, comforters, and clothing. Um, and so my, my thing wasn't really sucking my thumb, but it was kind of holding these, these items to myself, um, that I considered mine. And that's, you know, people say, you know, kids that are very, um, stingy, but it's not protective of your space, protective of your belongings, um, you know, that's it's an only child thing, but I think mine's even started before that, you know, and so I kind of make that parallel in, um, in another poem about the girl that we adopted. I wish I could remember her birth name, but I'll just refer to her as Ricky. I do remember her being like, it was very difficult, you know, to, oh, you know, let's, we're going to grab her bag, her backpack, put something in it, take something out, and that would be a meltdown. Like, don't touch my stuff, don't touch my clothes, don't touch me. Yeah, very, very deep abandonment. And, um, you know, as far as how far back does the trauma go, 
uh, and also to sort of answer your other question, um, I think that, you know, reuniting my birth siblings, my, particularly my sister, uh, Kanisha, she, she lives in Las Vegas. I believe we're nine years apart. She has a 10-year-old son, Micah. She, she has been one of the, the biggest, the strongest um, reconnecting, uh, 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 sort of filling, filling a void um, within me not to use her sort of as like a void filler. That's not, that's not the goal, but it has definitely like, you know, people kind of warn you often as a, as a young child in the placement system of like, you, you could meet them, you can meet your birth family all you want and they, they probably won't be the people, like they, they won't be anything for you. They're just gonna let you down, you know, you're gonna get your heart broken, you get used, whatever. Um, and it's been qu quite opposite. Um, um, in fact, I, I've, felt stronger and have received stronger support and sense of fam familial support than I have in most of my life in my adopted family. And that is not to say that they are um, horrible people or anything like that, but there's a sense of activeness that comes with being in, in, in your community that they were not in a lot of ways, I would say. And, um, um, you know, just immediately like my, my sister's my sister is like, okay, first of all, if you ever need living, living, like living space and you need to get out of your home, like just come, I'll give you a car, a couch, half a bed, floor, whatever you need. You can stay as long as you want. Um, and this is someone who's, you know, had her struggles with employment and just same things as most of us in this world, but there's, there's no question about it. And she would still be supportive of me and um, allow me to be myself. I would not have to shrink myself. And then my, my sister was in Las Vegas is already immediately like, you know, as soon as you graduate, come down, stay with us, stay here, get yourself off the ground, do whatever you need. We're here to support you. Um, of course, we want to see you and have you around. Um, the distance is far. So it just in six years, um, it's it's really been the most healing thing. And I spent a lot of time as a child, like literally praying. Like I would just get to the end of my bed, I would open my blinds, you know, the stars, and I don't know if this is doing anything, and I'm not very religious, but I'm going to give it a go. This is the thing that I want most of my life. You know, at that time, I didn't even know if I had any siblings. I'm like, everyone could be dead. There could be no one left, but I'm just going to pray anyway. Sidebar, but I think it's special that um, I met them through Ancestry.com. I'm just going to search for my own DNA, um, uh, countries, and things of that nature, and you know, contacted by cousins. So Ancestry gives you a lot of... Uh, you know, a long list of, oh, this could be a cousin, this could be whatever. Yeah. And so this specific woman was like, no, I'm going to talk to you. <laughs> and, you know, my last name, um, my father's last name was not in my profile. So I'm like, out of all the people on hers, I mean, how did she know? I think she might've actually just been reaching out to everyone, but uh, very quickly she was like, you know, my, your father and me or first cousin, his mom and my mom are sisters, that your father is my cousin. We, we grew up together. And I was like, whoa, Okay. Well, look at that. <laughs> uh, you know, and it was hard because, you know, when I, I, so my mom told me about my, my parents' situation and the age specifically and all of this when I was about 14, uh, which opened up a real wound of like time, you know, and so that's another thing. Um, and I, I learned about this term called queer time, which in, in queer studies is kind of talking about with the AIDS epidemic and how it puts an entire population of people in this place of, I need to live my life right now because of I'm not going to have it very soon. And so um, I think that that sort of did, did the same kind of, the same kind of fire within me of like, I went crazy and I was researching everything about AIDS, AIDS treatment, medical neglect, and what, what are the odds you've got 
if you're poor, if you're on the streets, if you're on drugs, it's been 20 years of doing living this this way. Like, what are the chances that these people would still be alive? And I got very committed to the journey of like putting my name in Facebook and putting it in different orders and things like that, putting in Google, just seeing if anything pops up. Um, got nothing. <laughs> but my 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 late teenage years into going into college were heavily um, focused on how can I get to meet them as soon as possible. But I knew that I didn't know how that would make that work. I mean, technically, I'm in a close adoption by law. They're protected from me as well. Um, and they're allowed to, you know, uphold that protection if they wanted, if they were still around. And so my senior year, my birth mother passed um, in February. Um, and then I turned 18 in, in June. Um, and then my, my birth father passed when I was 10, though. And then, what about a year later, I was able to start connecting with my birth siblings from ancestry. But I remember at 18, I asked my mom, Give me so, okay, can you try? And she was like, No, you need to just focus on, on school. They're not ready. You know, this is going to be a distraction for you. This is going to take you off your path. You know, um, it definitely, Brooks, you know, it, that's just another complex trauma on top of it, within our relationship um, there. But there's just this sort of like need to sort of protect me from harsh realities which was like not really for my protection it was mostly for hers um and so it's been hard being reconnected with my birth students with our relationship because there's this like inability to sort of do much with with the information i say hey i've met so-and-so or i want to after a year or two of knowing them i'm like oh it's her birthday or she invited me to do this or you know um my niece and nephew that and, you know, like, we can't have a conversation about it. My mom emotionally shuts down anytime we try to really talk much about my birth siblings um, or my birth family. And so it's, like, the best thing that's ever happened to me, one of the best things that ever happened to me, and I can barely share it with her. And so that's hard as well. And so I know that there is this, um, the reality, that she, the narrative she keeps trying to sell me on from childhood is, is not substantive. I hope you all find your way back to each other, but you may not in this lifetime. And, you know, you have to, for, it has to be for you. You know what I mean? That's, that's, that's the thing. It has to be for you because the truth of the matter is we are all alone. And it's sad to say that. And I think a lot of people are like, no, I've got plenty of people, but do, do you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> None of us really do that yeah. thing. And we come into the world alone. We leave the world alone. Yeah. And yeah. I think sometimes in life, there are moments we give so much of ourselves up to another, the dominion of ourselves, our mind, our heart, our soul, yeah. all yeah. our bodies, whether we wanted to or not yeah and it's 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 weird it's to be a whole person on this planet is probably close to insurmountable because we spend our whole life digging at little pieces of ourselves and handing them off or we or people have spoons and they're carving at our very nature mm -hmm. i love that yeah yeah well uh, is, uh, may I read another little section? I want you to read one of your poems too. I'm going to read another section. Um, I, this one really hit me too. Some say the mark between my eyes, the only one I was born with. But what about these new marks? Moles? Random scars? 
I wonder, stare them down, run my fingers over them. Maybe they aren't beauty marks, but in fact, entrance sites from others' demons, low-frequency spirits, traveling trauma. Fuck, so good. <laughs> so good. And when I read that, I was like, oh my God, I feel that so much. I feel it so much. And it's so beautifully and tragically said, entrance sites from others' demons. But that's that thing of little carvings, little by little. Yes. Oh, yes. That's a great connection. You know? Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, that's the one thing I love about poetry is that I could be so literal and uh, metaphorical and it's both the same um, pain is pain, um, violation is violation, um, the sort of um, relinquishing your part of yourself, whether it's, like you said, something you want to do or not, um, there is this sort of carving of ourselves over time. Um, and I think that it's, you know, it's even interesting um, as we sort of, um, the more that I understand about the universe, at least from a scientific point of view, I've been watching a lot of stuff on YouTube, just sort of understand space and things, but um, I, you know, there's, yeah, we come in this world uh, alone and we, and we leave alone, um, but I think that there's the, the, the part of life where we actually get to have this very beautiful, um, unparalleled experience that as just matter, as just atoms in the universe, it's really um, a blessing that you here were made this way, you know, at this time to spend it with these people on this earth. We get the opportunity to be in community with each other um, to experience something other than um, many atoms in, 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 in time and space and have such complex language that um, is uh, not able to be disconnected from um, emotions and that's even down to dance and music and other types of language I feel like um, our human experience is so um, it's just the beauty of the soul and the body we have with the human experience and the spiritual experience as well even when we're alone we're all having a very spiritual experience albeit painful or um, and liberating and sort of like nirvana or not um, there's a connectivity that we all get to to be aware of or to accept about that. And even on the flip side, on the painful side, um, you know, when you have these traumatic experiences, in some ways you think, or you, you're at a period of your grieving or a period of your mourning of your past self and the new self after this trauma where you're sitting and you're like, how long do I have to be connected to this person that I share this experience with? You know, it's something that my friends and I talk about a lot with their trauma, particularly with sexual trauma, it's like, how can I sever this, this connection between me and the person that abused me or you know, me and the person that betrayed me? And I appreciate that this poem um, for the opportunity to sort of focus on, um, you know, all parties involved in this experience as well. And I talk about like, you know, like with my mom's relationship, uh, or my mom, you know, she to be sort of a single mom raising me so I have no father, my mother is um, single or, you know, hasn't um, had a relationship mostly, mostly uh, in my life. I think she was in a relationship with a man when I was about, until I was about two or three. And then he decided to go back to his wife. He was supposed to be separated and getting a divorce from, but he changed his mind. And so I think sidebar of there's some heartbreak there from a mom that has something that she wasn't able to let go of. 
Um, and I also wonder um, a bit about like our, my mom's mom and like hoarding and compulsive keeping, compulsive shopping, things of that nature. So there's this like need to like control reality um, or control the past, control the future. And um, but anyway, so my mom is raising me. I'm in, going to school and we, she works late. Um, we live far, like I'm going to school. This is so in this story, this the context is that I'm at Beacon, which is a school in the waterfront. Um, and towards the end of it, we move all the way back to East Oakland to 105th. So it's a far distance. And so I needed, we needed help with like um, someone to, to look after me after school. And so um, we, she would just go and seek out parents that she felt like she would be comfortable with me being with, even if we didn't have much of a friendship as like kids that go to school together. But you know, that's, that's not necessarily normal. Um, but I think with this scenario, not to explain the poem, but you know, there was this sort of need to override like unfavorable experiences for the sake of, well, we just need child placement. So you kind of need to figure things out. And that was a good reoccurring theme in my life where if I was spending a lot of time with friends because I didn't have anyone else to stay with at the time, something would happen and I would open up to her, open up to her about it and kind of be like, I don't know what you want me to do. You just need to be somewhere with someone. And, um, which was, um, a letdown. And there a lot of times she would make friends with the families and I would have these sort of, we're friendly because you're nice and I'm nice. And I'm, I was raised to sort of respect your space and be thankful that someone welcomed me into, you welcomed me into your home. So I would always come with that sort of energy, but as soon as I felt disrespected, um, things that I think would be disrespectful to my mom, she would like not handle in a way that protected me or her, in my opinion. You know, I had this experience where I was with this girl, we spent afternoons together um, into the evening and I don't 100% know what's going on with her, but she's also an adopted child as well. And so she had her own experiences at play here and she was being raised by a white family. So I can imagine there might be uh, a lot of missing of details as well, possibly in her needs and her requirements for, you know, emotional support. Even with this, this book about trauma and avoidant attachment, I think it's really interesting. My mom does the same things of, you know, when you're, when you have an experience, right, because people say, you know, you go through life and you experience life in your body and your mind makes sense of it, right? Like, let's, in this sort of move to get people to be in their bodies again, so many of us live in a dissociated state. Um, and so just in general, I spent most of my time, you know, that's another, con you know, aspect of being born in the state of survival or, you already learn how to sort of leave your own body. And so um, it was easy for me to sort of block out stimuli that changed the narrative of my reality that I wasn't ready to, to handle, but that's kind of something you hope your parents can guide you with. But I, um, you know, my mom spent a lot of time in my childhood kind of telling people like, no, things were great, things were great. She, was, she loves me. We're, we have a happy, loving family. There's no problems. We have no problems. Everything's fine. And that's how she likes to remember it. Um, and so in, in some way, I, I processed this experience starting around four. Uh, so it's going to be one of my first experiences where I have a conscious memory. And um, this, this went on for a while, like maybe six months to a year. I had these experiences with this girl. We spent so much of our free time 
being sexual with each other in like very advanced ways when you know she the girl already like she you know she was doing a lot of role play and kind of acting out things that she's seen or had acted out on her and so it was, it was very advanced and it wasn't like this kind of cute curiosity of like before and we're I mean, human beings are sexual beings we have that um start very early anyway but it was this sort of shame that came over me of like my mother found out how much we were doing it, it would be disgraceful and on top of that i'm going to this i'm in this home with a child who has white parents i could be seen as someone of uh, enabling empowering like quote-unquote inappropriate behavior and so there was this fear that came over me for a long time of this dread of like, coming to her house having to continue being her friend not feeling like I could say anything about um, this because it would not, like my mother would only hear my participation, you know? Um, and, um, but I definitely think that that contributed to my energy problems. And probably around like five and six, I started putting the bed again. I couldn't like, there was this added level of like rejecting my mother, please don't touch me. I can't sleep in the dark anymore. I can't like being like, you know, under covers, um, uh, you know, feelings of entrapment. So. Um, this is part of what sent me to therapy at six. But by that point, I had kind of like, you know, gotten rid of the memory or suppressed it so deep. My therapist was like, well, it's going to be a while before we know what's, what's up with your child. So good luck. <laughs> we, we really didn't get much from the from the therapy. Um, even with my mental health, there's this sort of recurring thing in my life where like, yes, there was trauma and yes, there was this. But I thoroughly believe that uh, with being able to speak about the things that you've been through, there's, I mean, I definitely, you know, there's, I was reading this conversation online about um, how many parents work so hard to get their children, you know, uh, diagnosed with uh, different kinds of disorders and things of that nature, as long as it proves that the parent is not at fault for some kind yeah. of neglect. Right. Like, <laughs> I definitely think that uh, I think that sums it up <laughs> unfortunately so there's, there's this overhaul in my head to sort of like I've got to get my stuff out of my head and on page and then transmute that back into my body where I've now reintegrated my experiences as not being something that's third party or separated from me or I have to leave my body and go look at myself to just see what it was or whatever um, there's this desire to reintegrate my experiences and not um, have all of this, 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 this separation and dissociation. But but yeah, there I spent a long time of my my, my later years um, being like, no, no, like I I wanted that and I I enjoyed it and it's this is no, I I was just I was just one of those fast children. I'm just a fast child. Like I I I just was, I was on top of it. I was into it so young, like yay neat or whatever. But I always knew deep down like, that's not really what was going on. And it was a lot more, um, um, you know, painful and overwhelming. And, um, you know, I had to be this child that doesn't make mistakes. And so, you know, making this mistake, her mother found out, ended the friendship. It's like, you have to go. And then I got home, my mom's like, um, you're disgusting. <laughs> like, you're nasty. You're disgusting. I don't know why you would do that. Um, you know, she just had a lot of things. And I, I barely remember that. I remember a lot of words being being hurled, hurled at me. She didn't ask me once how we ended up in this situation or anything and um, how I really felt about it. Um, 
and that definitely seeped into our relationship as well. And there's a theme um, throughout where I do anything that doesn't align with her her reality, and I'm like, it's a character flaw within me, which is really overwhelming. <laughs> versus it being like an opportunity to just grow and learn, and you know, uh, things of that nature. There was this, um, you know, or to even protect you from it. Would you like to read one of your poems? Sure. Do you have a, a vibe or? A... I mean, I've, I've highlighted and, and uh, this, it's yeah. real good. <laughs> the whole thing is so freaking good. And it's one of, it's funny because in the beginning, you know, there's a comment about read it in any direction, in any way, and, you know, however you feel moved. And yeah, I mean, as I'm reading it, I, I have mother wounds for sure. As I read mm -hmm. it, I just have life wounds, like every yeah. one of us. I'm, I find myself rereading and, and replaying it and then feeling it where it is in my body that I feel the words, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's very powerful. It's, yes. um, it's very, very powerful. But yeah, please. Um, I'll read a um, stack of papers. Are you okay with that? And just to, to let everyone know, again, it's called Power of Our Wombs, W-O-M-B-S. A stack of papers that was really one of my favorite ones to write I, I actually so I'm going to say it was either fall 2021 or like like December or maybe January 2022 right before I turned the book into nomadic press publishing to have them read it and you know let me know if they would accept it and um I had I had gone to a virtual like shout out to the pandemic but I went to a virtual like wound healing um, workshop class with, with a doula from Oakland and was, um, I was like I'm just gonna give this a shot I found so many um things on Eventbrite <laughs> of like related to wound healing and I wanted to just see like in community talking about anything related to these topics like what might come from it in my writing and all of that and so um, she gave us a prompt quite literally and I just I, I'm always love the way that things just kind of come out of my head you know people ask me that a lot of like how did you come from this prompt and then it turned into this whole thing and I'm like I don't know I'm still trying to figure that out myself but um it's a pretty amazing process so just even the process of my writing is like one of my favorite things um and just a shout out like I love that the book was able to take um like graphics so one of my favorite things is the womb word dump which I actually made on uh, canva or something um, so I give you the words and then I give you um, background and then I give you the poem. And I just love that. Um, but Juju the doula hosted me and some other black women in her Heal the Womb virtual poetry class because we're two years and some change into a world pandemic. It was 6 p.m. on a Friday night. There were several of us from the Bay Area because Juju the doula is from Oakland and we're tuned in on time as she asked of us. Some even matriculated in as far out as Georgia, Kentucky and Virginia. We started, the womb, we started with a wound word dump, and she posed us these two questions. What are your wounds like? If you could say it was an object, what would it be? To which I say, stack of papers. Stack of papers, my womb is a stack of papers from the state. I only know my, myself in the words I read on these pages printed and published in 2003 when the social worker ceased visits, last report saying I hit the basics, she no longer needed to think of me to as early as 1998. Like how one is conditioned to learn oneself early on in report cards based on prison records, the things white people say or say or were saying about you. My understanding literally jumped up and walked right off the page. 
I envy people who can raise their hands in class because their hands deserve to be up. I worry if I don't speak, I look like I don't deserve a seat. Pat themselves on the back and feel surrounded. Seems like the thing my hands are best at is gripping my hip bones, kneading nape of my spine, and then diagnosing my wound pain as having traveled from my pelvis to my lower back, leaving a permanent ache. People have been telling me, long as I can remember, I got the arch of a young mom, like I've been carrying myself since birth. Once we tested positive, and they called my mother unfit, sent me on my lonesome way, away from source, from mother, from womb mama and mama's womb, from her bosoms, from her inner elbow, where my head meant to lay, from my birth name. I'm always searching for my other homes, always thinking I'm missing someone. Every so often I crack open my papers to jog my memory, to hear my mother's voice, to recognize the sound of my cries, my loneliness, recognize my mother's eyes peeking back at me from between the lines. I wonder if I apologize for her indiscretions will they reveal the rest of myself to me. But I also curse her father for breaking lines. His, son, his touch sent her to the streets. Late teens trying to snatch her knowing back, bending her spine, pushing her hips out and back, hoping sex by way of the block might ground her into a happy home. And I must also curse the state for pretending like they don't know. Crack was her way of holding on, a gamble, resilience, to which card she pulls first, freedom or death. And Black girl call home, Jasmine Mann wrote, mortality and magic occupied the same space, and she pulled death. I sometimes wish I hadn't, we hadn't cremated my mother so I could visit her in the yard so we could have our own conversations by cloak of privacy. But she is amongst her scorned memories, regrets, mistakes in my sister's home at the behest of all of those ears. They feel mostly judgment for her, understandably so. My womb has a moderately thick file of papers on her from clinics. Tested positive for cocaine, tested twice, six months apart, HIV. Morbid cramps, collapsed in shower, low blood pressure, needs birth control, never used, too scared. An even thicker file, post-assault, police riot, and leave offering nothing. After another assault, needs pregnancy tests, needs UTI tests, and sleeping pills. My womb with every interaction and non-interaction becomes more of a mystery to me. I guess she is love. I've discovered her to be potent power. She got me wet at fear hour to ease the pain, and I'm grateful. The most feminine part of me must have some hair. The masculine in me wants to keep it long. If my body could rise up and out like dough to make space for all this trauma, then I can believe my womb and my girl will in fact one day be able to stretch wide again, welcome love, endure the trauma of birth, a beauty that will not be denied. This is a story that matters. That's so powerful. It's exceptional. Thank you for sharing that. It's so beautiful and so tragic. And it's, which is as human as it gets. Yeah. You know? There's a, there's another one in mama's boy that, that you have here that mm -hmm. um, it's yeah. funny. I, I, it's, a, it's again, beautiful and, and horrible and in the best way. Obviously, you know what I mean by that as a word yeah. person. Um, yeah. Yeah. What I what struck me in that poem was the idea that the abuser, the male abuser, who both is desperately trying to get back to the womb, all the while ripping it to shreds. Mm hmm. Yes. Yes. You know, and it's interesting because um, so my my sophomore year. Of 
Ooh, Riverside. I, I went to UC Riverside and, um, you know, I, this whole, that whole, that whole time, two years there, I like the, the Greek life on that campus is insane. Look, most Greek life um, in most campuses, um, but there it was frustrating to go somewhere, like, especially after, right, like being a part of BSU at O'Dowd, having Mr. Green, like that's a very um, special community that we, even most BSUs, um, things of that nature don't have. And so I got to Riverside and was like super amped up. I just, you know, just really enjoyed my senior year, being able to be involved with PSU and, you know, um, just really coming to love Mr. Green. And then I got to Riverside and was like, okay, I at least have the, the, the wherewithal to find who is best for me. I can't expect everyone here to be good for me, but I can, I've now got better tools after high school to be able to like navigate BSC and figure out who I want to, um, who can I trust and who can I collaborate with and things of that nature. And so it was very, um, it's very much a letdown to sort of see how unchecked Greek life on campus in the Black community was. So, you know, I would definitely define my first year as being um, heavily, just a lot of stalking and a lot of harassment um, from these different um, frats. And it was just in a similar way of like, you, you go to these black events where it's like black excellence, and this is like 2017, 2018. So it's like, we're the height of black excellence in this whole concept. And uh, there, you know, these are the guys that are like president of BSC and they're student employees and they have these positions of power in BSC as well as being in these frats and holding all these parties and all this. And so it's like, at, at, after 7 p.m., <laughs> there are these demons and then during the daytime, there's supposed to be people that are leading you and you go into BSC, which is an incredibly small space on campus. And you can look around the room and be like, okay, you're an abuser. You beat your girlfriend, you raped so-and-so, you did this. My first my first year, there was like a, um, a more of a molestation sort of sexual assault experience that I had with one of these guys. And I went into the clinic and I asked for um, just sleeping pills. And I was like, I'm not here to make a report or anything like that. I just want to like two, maybe about three weeks later, I'm just seeing that I can't sleep and I need some sort of assistance with that. And she was like, stop, no, I'm gonna call the police. They're gonna come, you have to tell them now. It's not, it's not an option, I, I don't care. And I was like, okay, so then, um, that's not really what I wanted, but I was like, it's something to do now. And I guess I didn't fully understand how, like, it doesn't matter the moment you even put the word out there, they just gotta call the people. So I'm telling this guy, this is a black man. He's with um, Riverside Police over UCPD, I think. And he's like, but as soon as I, I mentioned one guy and he's like, oh, I know all, I know them all. I know them all by first name. Don't even worry about it. I know them all. Um, they all have at least six or seven allegations against them individually. And you're like, this guy, that guy, this guy, I named them all by first name. And I was like, yeah, uh, I was here to talk about one guy, but I've had issues with all of them, but you know, I'm glad you know about them. Yeah, well, that's great. And I was like, so what, he was like, well, there's no evidence, there's no witnesses. And um, this was quite a while ago. So, you know, the most I can do is go down there and give him good, good talking to. And I was like, a good talking to? You think that's going to help? Like these guys have positions of power it's being enabled from within the organization. Like, okay. <laughs> and then my in my second year I ended up dating these two guys and the first guy which is partly talked about mine's boy he um after the assault he uh you know he he literally ran, like ran to my bathroom starts trying to like throw up actually 
Um, and then he gets back in uh, the, the bed, essentially, and he we're talk, or he's talking to me. I'm not really saying much, but he's just telling me about, you know, I was, I was molested as a kid, and, you know, I, I assaulted someone when I was in high school, and I went to, found God, and I tried to, tried to fix this out of me, and I tried to cure myself, and I, I, I you know, kind of turned into the situation of now we're, we're back focusing on you again, and like what's happened to you, and that's, those, those things are true, and that's very sad to hear, um, but I, like, this, this isn't really about you now, I've now been victimized by you as well, and this is actually an intimate partner situation, it's a guy that I'm truly am dating, we are boyfriend and girlfriend, and so, um, you know, there's, like you said, there's this, like, you know, he's like, I, I never really meant to hurt you, though. You're definitely one of the best people I've ever been with. Right? And I still need you and this. And then when I didn't go for that, he starts turning it into, the, well, 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 you owed me. And, you know, I'm, I'm your boyfriend, so you can't just deny me of my right to sex and all this stuff. Um, and so there's this, like, I swear I love you. I swear I love you. Um, and, and I love women. And then you abuse me and then you blame me for it and you're just really um unhealed really um there's a boy in there that is like freaking out and doesn't know what to do that didn't learn anything about consent but also was molested as a child as well and so uh there's this actually a very negative you know uh, connection and experience with with consent and it was hard because you know a lot with like mega mega stallion and all these kind of situations in the public but with many women and many black women there's this desire to protect from the police, you know, that was another thing when, when she brought the police and it wasn't just that it was like, oh, I've got to go and count this to police officers who don't already have a good <laughs> reputation in this country. But on top of it, I was like, well, I didn't say I was ready to like give his name out. I mean, this is a young black man. I'm just not sure what I want to do yet. I just want to know that I want to sleep. I'm go sleep and do my homework. That's all I really want at the moment. Um, but, you know, with the situation, um, you know, I was, it was this, now I'm in this position of like, what do I do? You know, his father, uh, went to jail for multiple murders. Um, his mother was in jail for gangbanging. Most of his life, his brother's serving life in prison for murder. Um, you know, there's like I'm like feel responsible to protect him from ending up in the same kind of cycle. And um, but there's this lack of support for me uh, at the same time. And then the second guy that's also mentioned in Nemo's boy, he. Um, you know, this is someone I had a slightly, nah, nah, I wouldn't call it that. But, you know, the one thing was like, you know, he had a lot of trauma himself with like the police and being arrested. I mean, I think he'd been arrested like in the double digits by the time he was like 18, just from stop and frisk and growing up in South Central LA, Crenshaw, like the kids are just, you know what I mean, picked off and targeted even when you're not doing anything. And so, you know, growing up while black. <laughs> growing up while black yeah <laughs> you know <laughs> there was this like consistent like a violation and just sort of um you know um, I was very much like a fix there was this need to like constantly be separated from like responsibility and just like anytime any sort of feeling that came over him that he didn't want to have I mean, granted I was very young so it isn't older woman myself now I totally approach dating and relationships and, and you know, um, connection very differently. But at the time I was like, okay, wow. Like there's any time he feels anything good or bad, like it's time to take my clothes off. <laughs> you know, like the, the, the addiction was extreme. It was just, it was difficult. You know, he wanted me to have so much compassion and understanding for that and how overwhelming and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, my grandma died and all of that, you know, how 
sometimes young men try to find all these reasons why their behavior is okay when it's that's still not okay. Um, but then it was like, you know, we would be out and he would be afraid of something off the police or like, okay, so it's the police over there or whatever, we gotta get out of here, or whatever. And I was like, like it would it would be wrong. And I know that it's trauma, but there was like, it was like, nah, like like I was an enemy all of a sudden just because I was trying to like, I was like, you still have to calm down, like you're still you're just going to bring more attention by like opening the car like it was like his trauma was like not well managed at all um as far as like trauma responses go and it's like you can have trauma responses but they can put you in more danger as well so it is a responsibility to um work on that but ultimately when you're in a relationship you're spending time with someone as much as we were spending time in more of a situation but i was like um this is something that obviously you need support with but i'm like uh, it's hard for me to support you when I don't receive the same support. I expend so much of my energy taking care of you and like you doing this thing where it's like you're crawling back into my womb, like you literally need a mommy figure um, out of me. And then there's um, very, just very little compassion on um, to take care of yourself for the sake of the people, for you and the people in your life. Yeah, and you don't need to be someone's proxy for pain. It's... <laughs> that's not fair either it is tricky because the hurt people hurt people right we all know that but there's also choices to be made you get to choose how you take that pain and what you do with it my friends and i we my black female friends and i we talk a lot about like um you know you know i look at a lot of my friends that have black brothers and it's uh (laughs) Yeah, I like, I'm, you know, it's, it's hard to see so many of my young black women who's like their main enemies are like their fathers and their, and their brothers and these people are consistently their downfall, like setting them up to be in very dangerous situations, um, whether it's like intentional or just like, you know, I have a friend that's like a lot of times I wake up, my brothers are coming into the house at like 4 a.m. because they're smoking, they're just coming back from so-and-so and they're leaving the door unlocked um, and people can just come in and out of our home. Um, and there's just this like um, obliviousness to the needs of women in their life. Um, and it's, again, it's like, you know, she catch her sometimes just trying to, well, you know, but they didn't do this and they didn't do that and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah, but they're also relying on you to carry the family emotionally, financially, physically, like you're doing everything. Um, and they get to lay around in their depression and not do anything, get to lay around in their post-traumatic stress. Um, and not take care of themselves and put everyone else in uh, compromising positions. And so it's, it's, and it's not, it's, it's less of um, trying to get out of my, my place of anger, my place of rage and feeling betrayed by black men. And that's like a tra- generational take on for black women, you know, from the beginning, especially with, uh, after reconstruction and civil rights and stuff, or, you know, Jim Crow era where black men were finding ways to have more privilege and more, um, going out in the world and we were still being fairly you know neglected or like kept within the home and, and then suffering a lot of abuse there um and like not real any real systematic community-wide like uh, acknowledgement of that and i know that we're moving into this era now where it's a lot of young men they're like well y'all abuse us and y'all are toxic as well too and it's like okay but we've got an entire society that is you know, protecting the needs and wants of men, even when it, at the cost of everyone else. And so it's, it's very, um, 
it's it's that's 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 very avoidant of you. It's very privileged of waiting of you to be able to think that we can just move on after. I mean, black liberation is going to take everyone's input and everyone's, you know, pulling their weight. And so to not acknowledge the the impact of slavery on black women um, and everything after that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, I, and I know that's not, you know, when we have these painful experiences, it can make it, can make it hard to pull things apart and um, separate, you know, uh, grief and rage and anger and have sort of like logical kind of dip, dipping your toes into sort of like logical, um, you know, processes of uh, restoration um, because we're maybe a little bit too um, swallowed by anger and by grief. But nonetheless, I think just writing the poems themselves is an opportunity to sort of, you know, I shared that Mama's Boy at a, at a um, poetry reading competition. It's like prize money involved. And I, I you know I would say that the, the experience was, um, it was interesting, you know, you're like, okay, you know, it was a raffle sort of situation. I couldn't decide who, like, it wasn't up to me who I was behind, like, on the preceding end of and who I was going, who would be after me. So it was like, we had this massive concert thing, these people brought their instruments on, singing and killing it. And then I went on, like, I read Mama's Boy, and there were a lot of men in the audience. And so it had an interesting reaction in the moment. Um, and I think people, like you said, they could see the power of my words and my skill there, but it was, um, a bit much to hear the content that's for a lot of reasons like even the, the book I start with the content warning because a lot of times especially you know you, you hear these kind of poems and you don't even realize that this is something you've been through um so um I'm, I really look forward to the second version of the book there's an opportunity to expand the thoughts that are already in the one that exists as is and to add more um into the narrative in general and early separation is um needs way more uh, uh research and way more um, programs of support around is not something to be taken lightly at all. Uh, tell people how they might find you in the book and keep keep up with your progress. For now, you can find me on Instagram at kamani.j. That's K-E-N-A-N, three I's, I-I-I dot J, lowercase J or J. Um, so I'm on Instagram. I have a link in my bio that will take you to Linktree. It has a listing for the book on the distributor's website, spdbooks.org, small press distribution. Um, and also on Amazon, you can just open Amazon normally, type in Jessica Harrison or Power of Our Wounds, and it'll come up. Uh, it might take an extra day or two. They'll just be having it mailed from the distributor for you. But um, it's definitely findable on Amazon. And then um, on my Instagram page, I'll make announcements about poetry readings. Um, I'll make announcements about virtual readings. Um, if you're out of state, I'm currently located in California in the Bay Area. So if you're local, do k- keep up with me on Instagram and, you know, come find me out in the world reading and doing things like that. But the second edition of the book comes out. Um, it'll be out on Amazon, though. I won't have a publisher for this um, outside of Amazon. My website will be under the, um, the name jharstonwrites.com. I'll put links for everything on Hey Human Podcast, too. And please keep me updated on everything. I think you're an incredible talent. And just really, your poetry spoke to me so deeply. Uh, uh, generationally, it spoke to me. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I really appreciate your time and your 
honesty and openness. And thank you. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Thanks. Bye.